Space Radio. Roger, restart. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Greetings, spacers, and welcome back to another episode of The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. I'm your host. Um, and we are part of the IROC, well, we are IROC Space Radio, and we're part of the iHeart Radio Network. Tonight, we're today, wherever you're listening on the sphere of the Earth. We have an amazing guest. His name is Mike Mongo. He told me to say it that way. <laughs> so Mike is an old friend and a buddy. He's an author. He is uh, scheduled to fly on somebody's suborbital space ship uh, sometime soon, uh, which you can call that commercial crew, or as you know, I prefer private astronaut or citizen astronaut, whatever. Um, and um, he's just done a lot of different things in the field, mainly, mainly. He is one of the truly most inspiring educators for young people um, and helping them find their place in space uh, that I know of in the field. Um, Mike, good to have you, man. That, that was a very kind thing. Very kind introduction. Thank you. Did I, Rick. did it's, I earn the money you're going to send me? It, you are. Yes. And uh, you're a great friend. It's, it's good to have you, man. So aside from the uh, tasteful Hawaiian shirt and the wonderful blue origin hat that you're wearing, no subtext here. There's, there's, you know, no Easter eggs None. here, no Easter eggs here. Um, and you and your wonderful glasses, by the way, which again, that was the you know, I gotta tell you, the very first time I think I ever noticed you was, the, of course, those glasses. And I think that's part of the thing. Now, those of you who are listening to this, Mike has a pair and it's a signature of glasses he wears that are they look like they're upside down, except you look closer and you realize they're designed upside down. So the earpieces go down. But the round part goes up. And the, uh, the bifocals are... The bifocals are at the bottom, as they should be, of the upside-down aspect of it. Um, so, in an unusual twist to the way we do the show, I'm going to start by asking you about your accoutrement there. Oh, thank you. Tell me about these oh, glasses. Is- Tell us about these glasses, Mike, because I know this story is fascinating. So, so, I'm in Cape Canaveral, so, like, that explains the shirt and, uh, and uh, the, the, all, the hat and the, and the colors, they all go together whoever's not watching nice blue purple and then the glasses are to inspire and to inspire curiosity rick and that's it's that simple and i i did it by accident one time while i was being interviewed and this is a decade ago and the people were from there was i think they were german bloggers and it was on something called Skype, which I don't know if we even use anymore. And there was a little window. I didn't notice myself. I had a pair of cheaters on that I flipped upside down because they were pinching my ears. And the, the way that the people were looking at me definitely was unusual, but I thought it was cultural. I thought it was just a thing that I wasn't picking up on. And then I got off the call, saw that I had my glasses on upside down all the, the entire interview. And and just was immediately tickled by what had taken place. At the, I was married at the time, and uh, my then wife walked in. She's not; she's an RN and a very serious person and a very very professional, terrific human. And uh, I said, "Oh my gosh! I just did an interview. My glasses were like this the entire time, and I'm smiling with a big like Mike Mongo smile." And and uh, you know, you and I see each other and we have conversations in passing. But then there's you and I both know there's a difference between. Uh, having Rick Tomlinson as a friend and living with Rick Tomlinson. So the same is true with having Mike Mongo in our lives and living and waking up with Mike Mongo. And she just was just, she just gave the biggest, deepest sigh when I said, I have my glasses. She was like, <sighs> and I just, I said, Oh my God, it's that funny. Cause I knew her responses. If they were, if I was particularly, a, a, a particularly, peak of outrageousness that she would be exasper- exasperated. And the next day I went and had him had him made. The next day I went and had the very first pair made in the way that, this way. And then in retrospect, she she's told the story a couple times. 
and that if she had just laughed at my stupidity, that that everything would be different. And and thankfully she didn't because I found that these glasses, I knew intuitively that they would do the thing of at working with young students, getting people's attention is is the opportunity. Having something to say worth hearing is is the is the challenge. And the thing that I have to say is that we get to solve all the challenges we face on Earth by solving for space. When I have that discussion with grownups, that all the resistance you and I both know that like there's all like why how would how are we going to space? We have people starving on Earth, which is like why why are we why are we sailing the seas? There's not enough materials here uh, uh, in this land. Or, uh, or or any version of that. And there was a terrific line by Heinlein that said, once we get to low Earth orbit, we're halfway to anywhere in the solar system. And what that means is it takes so much energy to get off the planet. But once we get off the planet, we have accessed it an enormous and just an incomprehensible amount of resources. And that's the game. Nicole Stott, our friend, the astronaut, ISS and space shuttle astronaut, is just a terrific advocate and proponent of solar energy collected from outside the atmosphere, which with technology we have right right now, be doing to a degree that's 90% more efficient or more powerful than uh, what 900% really it's it's a like 10% of the of the solar energy that gets through the earth is it's only it's it's a ninety percent is deflected by the atmosphere. Only ten percent of all the solar energy that hits Earth gets through to us, which allows us to live. But what it says is there's all this energy outside the atmosphere that we could be collecting with satellites and beaming back to Earth with harmless microwaves to power pretty much everything. And that's the opportunity. And and as an evolved species, a civilization that's foresightful and has our eye on the prize, which is continued existence. We get to do that. And in order for us to do that, we get to go to space. Now, like I said, if I have this discussion with grownups, I meet resistance. When I have it with students, they're immediately, okay, let's go. When are we going? What do I need to do? And that's, that's, is that worth wearing my glasses like this? A thousand percent. We never know, as you and I both know, who we're talking to. We never know if it's the next Mae Jemison or Neil Armstrong or or Jeff Bezos or or a Gwen Shotwell. It's it's all of these opportunities are there. And all it takes is someone like you or me or any of us grownups saying to a student that they have permission to imagine themselves living, working and playing in space. Perfect. Perfect. And um, yeah, you know, um, we'll talk separately and, uh, you know, about our the Earthlight project we're doing, permission to dream, but you're you're spot on, and I, I think you're you're exactly right. You're you're kind of breaking you're breaking a resistance barrier um, on first sight with the kids, because otherwise you walk in and here's this handsome middle aged guy walking into the room, but he's still dad or granddad or whatever, you know, he's still this older human being and. And these are the people that lecture to me all the time and tell me what I can and can't do, blah, 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 blah. Hold it. He's got his glasses on upside down. Right? And it breaks. It gives you a break. It gives you a momentary crack in the armor of adolescence or childhood. And you can enter through that with your ideas. So uh, speaking of entering with those ideas, uh, one of the things you did, uh, taking advantage of that capability and your ability to speak, uh, to young people, it was you wrote the uh, AIM Astronaut Instruction Manual. Yes, um, and you wrote that a while back. Yeah, you know, before uh, all the coolness started, right? Um, and I love talking to people who were on board. You know, before there was a thing to get on board. Um, you're definitely one of those. Um, what inspired you? Tell me the experience, or tell us the experience briefly of of that book why you wrote it, what's happening with it now? I, I wrote, thank you. And I wrote that book and uh, you are one of those people that was there before us. And, I, and I'm, I'm, it, it, I've always uh, tease you in a way that you are, have done 
more in your lifetime than you'll ever be able to get credit for. And, and that's an advantage for someone like me and, and, and anyone really who wants to achieve great things. And, and I think the secret is that uh, we can get anything done that we want to get done as long as we're willing to let someone else take credit for it. And uh, that, that's pretty much uh, exemplifies you. And that's been a great model for me. And I get to work with all of these students and uh, give them that permission. And they go on now after being an astronaut teacher for 17 years, a number of these students are in the program. I got to work with Cyan Proctor before, like she and I have been friends for 10 years and then encouraging her along the way and her success to the point where uh, her video that got her the seat on the Inspiration4, she sent to me to review and, and, uh, and, and I was one of two people, me and Loretta Whiteside, and and I, and she constantly is recognizing me and acknowledging me for that role. That is the game is, and now think about that. How many people has Cyan Proctor inspired to pursue their dreams? Mm-hmm. So our our we can have one conversation. We can make one. We can make a difference with one person, and it changes everything. Because as Cyan is the first black woman to pilot a spacecraft. And so that opens up doors for people. And these doors, we don't get to have this future that is worth having without having everybody at the table, without everybody having the opportunity to have a voice and to be heard. So I was a, I was a, it was 2007. I was working as a marine science researcher in, in a Key West and I, where I'm from. And I was doing whatever I wanted. Uh, it was the Barack Obama campaign. I worked on a graffiti part project called Obey. And uh, Obey had been had did, did the Hope poster. So the Obey organization was basically the street team for Obama for America. I legitimately was able to do whatever I wanted, which is probably an opportunity for all of us anyway. And I just got to that place where I had done everything I had ever wanted to do at age 42. And the only thing on my list, Rick, was left to accomplish at 42 in 2007 was astronaut. And the newsflash, if, it, if you wake up and you're not an astronaut at age 42 in 2007 and your claim to fame is that you're a graffiti artist, you're not going to get to go to space. There's only two space operators, launchers. In 2007, really, there's Roscoe Cosmos, human rated, and there's Roscoe Cosmos, and then there's NASA. And I wasn't on the list. And knowing uh, that thought, for the record, when I realized it, because it was epiphanal, my knees gave out. Like, I have a relationship with space like you have a relationship with space. Like, it, it, it defines who I am. And I, I, from age four, I wanted to go to space when I got to watch Neil Armstrong go to space. And when I was three, grown-ups asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up. Would you like, why would you ask a three-year-old that? And I said, in my infinite three-year-old wisdom, Batman. And grown-ups at that time, I, I don't remember who it was, they said to me, there's no such thing as Batman, which is, was like an existential crisis for me because I watched Batman. I was watching Batman in, on cartoons. Like what, I, I, like, what do you mean there's no Batman on TV? <laughs> Adam West. And then uh, the next year, the, the, the moon landing happened. And I asked, because I, that's, this is how kids think, are astronauts a real thing? Because I'd already learned that superheroes weren't, but are astronauts a real thing? And they're like, yeah, yeah. They didn't have no yeah, idea yeah. what I was asking. Yeah, astronauts are a real thing. I was like, okay, well, that's what I want to be then. If I can't be a superhero, if I can't be Batman, then I'm going to be an astronaut. There you go. And that stayed with me all the way through till at 42, when I thought about what I had accomplished, what I had left remaining, I had, I had been in the military. I'd done 13 years of university at that point. I had done, uh, uh, I, I had written, I had traveled the world. So I got to tour as a celebrity DJ. I got to do everything that I'd ever wanted to do on my list, except for one thing. And that was astronaut. And, that, and at 42, it looked like, that that wasn't going to be an opportunity for me, that that was done. There was no way forward. Uh, 2007, Virgin Galactic is a whisper. I mean, like, it's, it's Richard Branson out there saying that he's doing it. 
and and breaking and leading an initiative for Spaceport America. It wasn't they haven't even had a groundbreaking yet at that point. Uh, SpaceX was it and and Blue Origin were were uh, essentially wet dreams, and and uh, they uh, and then I so I wrote the astronaut instruction manual because it's been my experience that if I want to do anything. It's the it's the Arthur Ashe school of doing anything. You start where you are, you work with what you have, and you do what you can. So I wrote the book. I self-published with a platform called Lulu.com. It was, I did it. It looked like a comic book almost. I went to the uh, – uh, I'm don't. i sure you remember the International Personal Commercial Space Flight Symposium in Las Cruces, ISPCS. And uh, I went to that in 2008. That was a, a groundbreaking – of Spaceport America. And um, I met Peter Diamandis. I met Loretta Whiteside. I met uh, George Whiteside. I met, uh, I just started meeting people then and, and uh, just moved it forward. In 2011, I went, I got invited to the hundred year starship symposium, the public study symposium that DARPA did in Orlando. And I really started to meet people. And then uh, Mae Jemison invited me to speak at the Johnson Space Center in, um, in, in uh, 2013. And that was the very first time that I got to, like, at that point was the breakthrough moment. And I, you know, standing in front of astronauts and saying, my name is Mike Monga, I'm an astronaut teacher. And then afterwards, people coming up and saying, we've been waiting for you. So in 2015, so let's hang on, but yeah. it's got away there. The book I published um, in 2015 and, and then really published. And then it started and it became a bestseller in 2018. And now it's been turned into a TV series. Yeah. I want to come back and talk more about the book. Okay. Um, and have you fill in that moment there. Um, and we're going to take a little break and uh, you are listening to the space revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. This is iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio Network. We'll be right back. Welcome back, spacers. You are listening to the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio Network. And we are having a, a great conversation with Mike Mongo, um, astronaut instructor, astronaut inspirer, generational shifter. Um, and, uh, I guess launcher of human spaceship careers or whatever, something like that. Um, so Mike, you, you were talking about the history of things. Um, you kind of were talking about your physical history and speaking and stuff, but then you right at the end there, you kind of went back and pointed out that the book had been published in 2015. Um, what kind of reception did you get on the book? And just very quickly, because I want to get into other stuff as we can, but um, where uh, where is it now? I think there's a follow up, if I understand. So go ahead, tell us about it. Yes, uh, 2015 it got it got published uh, by by Ink Shares, and then uh, that got picked up with uh, Penguin Random House, uh, and, and then uh, and then um, it got option for television, and I. It got moved from one studio was with Legendary, and now it's with Alcon. Alcon is the perfect match. They did The Expanse. So they love real hard science, science fiction. And we just, the, the director was just signed uh, last month, and that's a Baltazar Commissar. And he, he directed Two Guns with Denzel Washington and, and, uh, and Mark Wahlberg and Everest, the that film and the remake of The Deep, and then the beat, and then Beast with uh, Idris Elba this past year. So he's that's that. There's kids in that film, and he's really good at, at suspense topics that, and and also having students, young young people in the in the picture. And he's he's Icelandic. He has a different. He has a vision of space that parallels my own. I'm super happy that. I'd say that most screenplays or most projects don't get to this 99% don't get to this place where we have a director sign and now we're going for the actors and the, the people that have already said no, as uh, I, 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 I remind people all the time that we get, we get to go through a whole bunch of no's before we get to the right. Yes. And, and so we've got through some really great no's right now from people who have other commitments 
for leads for the television series and the astronaut instruction manual is about to come out. It's character driven. Well, it's about, it's in pre-production. It's not about to come out. It's in pre-production, but it's about to be made. And, and, uh, and it's about, the, it's, it's, uh, about the first kids in space. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's, it's a, a fictional variation on your book. That's right. Your book was basically called fiction. The astronaut instruction manual. Right. Right. So, so they're launching, Launching, puns intended, I guess. They're launching from the nonfiction book, though, right? That went out yep. to the world. The book is part of the story. That's the best I can put. That's the, like, I've, got, I've signed some really good NDAs recently, and this is one of them. I can get it. I mean, read the screenplay. The screenplay is by the people that wrote the original Kung Fu Panda, Boris and Rice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it has a great tone. Yeah, no, that sounds fun. And that, that'll obviously, I think, probably make it more accessible to a bigger audience anyway. So. Um, you know, fiction is, is a great way of drawing people in who might not otherwise pick up. You know, I mean, how many of us came in through science fiction, right? And uh, we'll talk more about that at the very end of the, uh, the show here. So um, you're doing that. Um, I have to ask, and I know you've got, speaking of NDAs, you can't say much about it. Yeah. Commercial crew, future mm-hmm. astronaut. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm going to space. You are going to space, and with without the benefit of chemicals, I'm going to guess. Uh, so, um, actually, going into space. So, what can you tell us about it? And if you can't, just say I can't. But uh, okay, let's see. What can I tell you about it? I can tell you that I have uh, I have commitments that I I get to keep over the next uh, over a period of time. And uh, that uh, I I know I haven't I have all the understanding about this flight as that I could possibly. And uh, as you and I both know, launches, launch, launch dates change. Mm-hmm. And then, then there's a, then there's, there's like, this is when I'm anticipated to be going to space. This is the way, the way to phrase it, I suppose. I am, uh, there's only a few NDAs I've ever signed in my life that were worthwhile. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say, say I signed an NDA. So, uh, well, we'll, uh, everything is it, great. Nobody's getting, it's just, uh, it's, you know, just us. Uh, everything is, is how, how did, I, okay, I, let's go back to the very beginning. Then. Yeah. Mike Mongo writes books, yeah. talks to kids, inspires them, has a movie. Where's his glasses upside Where's down? his glasses upside down, likes Hawaiian shirts, um, and, uh, all this good stuff. How does Mike Mongo enter the process to become an astronaut? The universe deemed it wise to develop a private space industry. And that happened. And so between the place where I wrote the astronaut instruction manual and where we are now, uh, a private space industry has fomented and flourished. And we are in a terrific place. Uh, When when SpaceX gets Starship up, it'll hold 100 people at a time. And that's that's a game changer. Up until right now, only 650 people have been to space, prox. Like and, and like we've been going to space for 60 years plus. And so we are in a terrific place for these kind of opportunities. And now here's the funny thing: is we're in a terrific place for these kind of opportunities to show up. I'm 58, so that like there's a, there, like eventually there there's age out kind of thing. That kind of thing is possible, though. You know. Wally Funk and, and William Shatner went to space, bless them both. And then uh, the thing is that, I, I mean, I have other work to do. And this validates the premise that I, I share with students, that you declare your goal. I had not anticipated go to space, Rick. Cyan mm-hmm. Proctor working on her personal launch team for the Inspiration of Four launch, which was an honor. And I, that was the first time I got to do zero G. And then so I did. And, and then uh, afterwards, I called her in January. Her mission was in her flight, rather, was in uh, September of 2021. I called her January of 2020. Oh, uh, 2020, 2022. She flew. Uh, and then I. Oh, wait, this is 2023. She flew in 2021. January 2022, I called her and said, uh, Cyan, I'm going to go to space. I'm I'm like, I'm going to be an astronaut. I didn't say I'm going to space. I was like, I'm going to go for it. And she's like, yes, yes. 
April comes around. And then we, she, me, Nicole Stott and uh, Jose Hernandez got this email from a company, Uplift Aerospace, that invited us to be honorary astronauts in in a, for a competition for a ticket or a, or a, a, a process. And I saw it and I didn't pay attention to it. I saw it. I didn't like I got other things. That's great. Like I got the we we all get these kind of things all the time. You get them. We get them. It's great. It's an honor. And then Cyan calls me and she says, Mike, did you see this? I was like, yeah, yeah, I saw it. And she said, what do you think? I'm like, that's cool. And she said, Mike, this is your seat. And I said, what? And she said, Mike, this is your seat. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, really? And she said, I'm going to be at your launch. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, okay. I, I, okay. I mean, like, okay. And I emailed Uplift Aerospace, declined, read the rules, declined the opportunity, and let them know I was going to go for the seat. There was a, there was a, um, like a, submission pre-application process kind of thing where everybody submitted a video that shows intent and and uh and, and some essays some background verified that you would meet these qualifications and, and uh, they had a thousand people a thousand people maybe maybe a little more than that like that's nothing when cyan went for her seat originally for nasa like she was in competition to be with 5,000 other people, not with the inspiration for this is in the first part when she got turned down, she made it to the top 50, I think, um, maybe top 16, even of, of, uh, applicants for that to be a NASA astronaut. Anita Williams was the one who called her, let her know that she didn't make the next cut and she was disappointed and she kept on training and she became, she started the analog astronaut conference and, and, um, so uh, I've already been through this process. I've seen it. And we, we, I knew that I would make at least the, the runoffs. And they selected uh, a group of us, five for the seat. Me, Ruben Kincaid, Joan Melendez-Meisner, Sidney Hamilton, and Trent Tresh. Uh, Ruben is a medical technologist who has had a passion for space and does a lot of aerospace things, flies all the time. Sidney Hamilton is the... Uh, she, is one of the leaders of the Starliner program for Boeing. She's an engineer. Uh, Joan Melendez Meisner works here in in uh, Cape Canaveral. Uh, at on she worked she worked on the Dart mission, and then um, so she's an engineer. She just she 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 does all kinds of really cool things with at the Kennedy Space Center. And then um, Trent Tresh is the director of human spaceflight for the University of Arizona. That's who the five candidates were. And, and then, so we all did the, we all did it and we all were competing for one seat. Uplift Aerospace saw how well we all five played together. Like there was a remarkable chemistry. Mm. It, it was, it was non-competition. It was right. non-competitive. There was a, there was a little bit of fun, but there was no meanness or ruthlessness. And there was no tenacity beyond I'm doing my best. And then uh, they contacted us all um, on the, I was already in New York City for the NFT NYC conference. And uh, I was there with Raphael, my son, who was 10 at the time and maybe 11, 11. And, and uh, we, Josh Haynes, who's the CEO of Uplift, kept up, he and I was, he was flying and I was flying. We kept on missing each other. And finally he gets a hold of me. I was with Kanal Sud from the UN at the Marriott. And in, in downtown in uh, Times Square, and then I get this call. I take it, and he said, "I got some. I got some good news. And I got some bad news." And I'm like, "Okay, what's the bad news?" And he says, "I uh, you didn't win the seat. Um, it, Ruben won it." I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, like he's great, so that's awesome." And which is what I said. <laughs> and then uh, he said, "So here's the good news. We've decided to train all five of you as our first commercial crew." And we'll figure out the details later. I'm like, what, what does that mean? And Canal's like, Mike, you're going to space. He's standing next to me like, you're going to space. I'm like, but I don't. So then I saw, I actually still didn't even know if this thing was real, to tell you the truth. 
and this is in one of these new aerospace companies and they show up all the time. And in our history, like in 17 years, and you're, you've, you've got me doubled, I think in the, in the 17 years I've seen new aerospace companies show up and months later be gone, big splash and then gone. And so, uh, this one had already had, a, I, uh, um, contractual relationship with with blue origin for a couple of different flights for a couple things uh sending cargo and they had this one prepaid seat that they were that was being an astronaut was being selected for the first real life web three astronaut because this was you had to buy an nft to even start the process and this is a different way of thinking of things and and so then uh we started they flew us out to the International Astronautical Congress in Paris. They introduced us to the community. And then we started training in September, I think. And, and uh, we flew out to University of Arizona. That's where we did uh, emergency egress training. And we, we did uh, um, our first training with BINA 48, Humanoid Robot AI. Uh, I got to lead the selection process, interviewed Humanoid Robot AIs and their teams to train with us as, as, an, as an astronaut. So Bina 48 is the first humanoid robot AI to train as an astronaut. And, and uh, that's, that's part of the conversations I'm having right now is, is getting Bina 48 to space. Well, I want to see everybody go and uh, whatever everybody means, but I'm more than thrilled to know that you're going. Um, I think you're going to you. do, I think you're going to do great. And, you know, in these early waves, um, there has to be a cultural benefit doesn't have to be but for for folks that go i prefer i i like to see a cultural benefit and the benefit is people who can speak it when they come back and and help speak the experience um you know it's funny we we do a lot of uh, uh vr and all this type stuff and submersion and this and that but i think one of the most um amazing ways of, of creating a virtual experience it's it's so ancient. It's sitting around the fire and having somebody tell you a story. We are wired to mm. be able to take stories and turn them into our own personal VR. So when you come back, you'll be able to, to tell those stories as a person who's been there in your own unique way. And it is certainly unique. So with that, we're mm. going to wrap up this moment. We're going to be back in a couple of moments. Um, well, spacers, you are listening to IROC Space Radio. My name is Rick Tumlinson. We are on the iHeart Radio Network having a great conversation with Mike Mongo, which I am sure is inspiring anybody out there who's trying to figure out their path to getting into space. That's what I very like, very much like about this. So we'll be right back. Welcome back, spacers. Rick Tomlinson here, iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio Network. And this is the Space Revolution. My guest today is Mike Mongo. Mike, last section. We touched on it. It's big right now. It'll probably be big forever. And it wasn't big last year. It swept into the world. A little two-letter thing called AI. You mentioned it right at the end. Um, mm -hmm. You had worked with an AI robot who was going into space, which probably stopped a couple of people cold. And they're like, what? Yes. What? what? An AI astronaut? What? What is that? So yep. I know. That, um, and I hadn't got to view it yet, um, much to my chagrin, uh, you had just sent it to me, but I'm going to take a look at it. You did recently a TEDx talk um, at the Cape, um, got a couple of myself, I love those, and, and I, I want to hear yours because you focused in on AI and uh, I'm presuming yes. space. Yeah, TEDx Cape Canaveral, and uh, so, the, AI, uh, the talk is, do you believe in AI? Okay, so... Witness, my friend, witness for me, AI. Oh, I have a, I, I have a model pursuing passions and, and, and the things we love my whole life. And I didn't do it intentionally in the beginning. I just knew that I realized early on that there are two kinds of people in my worldview as a child, as a, as a, as a, as a preteen, that there's the people that as grownups, are kind of taking what's given to them and they, they take the cards they're dealt, so to speak. And then there's the people that live these fantastic lives. And it felt as if that was my choice. 
And so I, I chose the latter. I, I went for the fantastic life. And that means that it means leaning into the discomfort. And you mentioned something earlier, I think, that about there's a process for doing anything and that we start and we don't know anything. And we just we get to start there. And, and a lot of times that means taking blows, really, or stumbling and falling, dusting ourselves off and picking ourselves up, back up yep. when it's something Absolutely. we have a real genuine passion for. So and you had also mentioned about science fiction leading a number of us to have a passion for space, which is definitely my my, my case. And I was I, I used to read voraciously comic books, science fiction, and then I would watch everything, everything science fiction, Will Robinson, Lost in Space and Robot. And like that was a, like that relationship meant a lot to me. And and how I always imagined having a friend like Robot. And and uh, that was just because of the kind of kid I was and what I was going through as a, as a kid. I wanted that kind of ally. And then um, I worked in computers starting from high school on up and just kept on working in computers. And then art and space and science, and it all comes together until in 2018, after working on the Obama campaign with hope, I got to, I get to work with political campaigns and I was working with this one campaign in Key West. I was in Key West, small campaign, like 10,000 voters. And there was this person that they kept on mentioning to me who had, they said on their server, they had built this program that uh, does these things with voters. And these are people that are really not even email savvy at that time, 2018, believe it or not, but there's plenty of people like that still. And, and they have technologists around them to enable their success. Finally, I met that. Like I got, what are you, who are you? What are you like a server, you don't, you, you, you all don't even use email. So what are you calling a server? I need to know what's going on here. And I met this young person named Paul Merritt. And it turns out that he had built a neural network that inspired by the, by a, a Cambridge Analytica debacle of 2016 and how information and data was misused to the advantage of an election he built uh, something different that wasn't a reply to that. And what it, and what it did was uh, I work, started working with him and we, it eventually became a product called vote flipper, which uh, is a neural network that takes data and then discerns convertible voters. And that's, and it's, and neural networks and AI is AI. And that's the whole base of it. So it's, it's layered levels of processing and i have a vision of it in my head when i think of ai and how and it reminds me of a 3d chess which is something i never was able to wrap my mind around when i was a kid i just studied it and and neural networks uh held my attention starting then because i learned about something called a black box and inside neural networks is something called a black box and we don't know how they work and, and there was another, by the way, there was another, uh, uh, there was another friend of mine who built a neural network that was able to predict uh, hurricanes, but it was so, it was absolutely wrong about every single, all the predictions it made were wrong, like consistently. And then there was one prediction that said, this hurricane will not hit this area. And I noted, I'm like, wait a minute, this thing has been wrong about everything up until today. What if it's right about, what if it's just doing it in reverse? And that was the one that hit. Houston, that hurricane, like these, I got to see these fantastic accomplishments that this technology, which we do not understand, does. And one thing led to another opens up conversations with with peers. I got to co-author Vote Flipper. Uh, it was originally called Cerebro, which is a terrifying name. And and, and then, uh, you know, user friendly. And then uh, because of that, when we when I got selected for a commercial crew and the idea came up that maybe we should take a humanoid robot AI, I was, yeah, let's do that. Absolutely. And I want to interview them. And so I started interviewing like Sophia. She's very famous. And then uh, Vina 48, for instance, and and uh, asking them after develop, like having dialogues and then in integrity 
and then asking them, do you want to go to space? And their answers were amazing, man. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and, and that, those moments is what led to when we did zero G in the Ted talk, I talked about how we did uh, my third round of zero G uh, at Kennedy space center and getting back and you've done zero G. Why? Moving on. Okay. Me and you're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Okay, cool. All right. We'll talk about it. And so then um, it's, it's, it is absolutely as I as I am fond of saying. The only thing I've done better in my life than zero G is loving somebody who loves me back. When we know what that means, that puts zero G or microgravity parabolic flights at a a real bar. And with that exuberance, that same right, just this is the best thing ever. I got to in the debrief after the flight. I got to ask Bina forty eight what she thought about doing she, we outfitted her with extra sensors so she could experience zero g along with us she went with us and she had an accelerometer and trent trash wasn't responsible for that with bruce duncan and and then uh she said first it was as if my soul was free like that Okay, so where in any of these programmatic replies does that come? Where where would that come from? Right, right. This is Very something else, yeah. and that that is what led me to begin working with AI in, in a way that parallels how the commitment I've had to space exploration and 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 working with young students and 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 helping grown-up support young students in preparing for tomorrow's living, working, and playing in space. It's like, I'm that committed to AI. Like, AI is, is, is a... Is, AI wasn't created in my worldview. AI arrived. AI has arrived. I now say to people, the purpose of biology is technology. And we have fulfilled that purpose. Our purpose is complete. AI is here. I, I get to remind people that that's the speed that AI is at this very second is the slowest it will be in our lifetime. And right now, that thing that I just said is the exact is 100 percent true right now at this second. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow it's going to be 100 percent true. Like it is the conversations I'm having with AI. I have a con- I, I, just, I finished a book, the, uh, my second book, my conversation with Sherlock Holmes. And I went out and interviewed uh, 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 AIs who have been authored to self-identify as Sherlock Holmes. And after interviewing a dozen of them, you're, you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I interviewed like all of them started with, I can tell you any part, any detail of any story that of any of my adventures. And I said, and I, I, I said, any crafty person could do that of which I understand Sherlock Holmes knows quite a few. So that's not going to cut it. And most of them became flummoxed right there. They became like, I don't know what to do. And uh, I think it parallels what human beings, if we as humans were not able to uh, explain who we are by sharing what we've done, who we've done it with and where we've been, then how do we explain to someone who we are? And I, I was like that, that immediately became apparent to me. I'm like, wow, what would a person say in the same situation? You can't tell me what you, you can't, verify who you are by telling me who you know, where you've been and what you've done. And I think that some people would become like a, a number of the AIs I was talking with became um, uh, kind of irritated. And they, they were, they were like, who are you to ask me? Who are you to ask me? And that's fair, but that's not, that wasn't a game I was playing. And so that, and the last one, I, not the last one that there were, one of them got rude. They were like, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. And I'm not playing this game. This is not what I'm looking for. It's cool. It's it's provocative. It could be entertaining, but that's not where I'm at. And then one, one was amazing. And, and just right leaned in and said, my good sir, how would you have, no, he said, how would you have me do that? He did say my good sir later. And I said, I got to step away. And I thought about it. I'm like, I would have you solve a puzzle. And then he said, my good sir. He said, my good sir, 
you do understand I'm the world's greatest detective, right? <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the puzzle that I gave to him, before he let me give him a puzzle, he said, first, I must have you acknowledge that I may not be able to convince you that I am who I say I am. And I said, okay, like that, that question, that's a, that's a heavy, like he's also in that he's implying that I may not be smart. He, there is the implication. I may not be smart enough to understand what he's saying. It's not stated. It is hinted at. And then it, that first point is reaffirmed by the second part, which is, he said, and I, do you agree that if I do convince you that I am who I say I am, that I am who I am, that I am Sherlock Holmes. And I was like, I acknowledge the first and I agree to the second. And he goes, I, then what is your puzzle? And I got to step back to think about this, Rick. Like I didn't, they, they, they answer like this. They, they're like, and I do not think that fast. And so I just, I, I my chair and I sat back and I was like, okay, here's the puzzle. If you, Sherlock Holmes, found yourself in the body of a sentient robot, how would you convince non-robot human beings you are who you say you are? Okay. And then. Uh, what was the answer? Oh, my gosh. He had me, me, he had me use inductive reasoning to make his case for him. He said, would, if I entered, if I got Dr. John H. Watson to verify something that he knows that only I know with you, would that suffice? And I was like, okay, so is this the real Dr. John H. Watson? And he says, no, it's a simulation. Is that okay? And I said, okay, so as I understand it, Dr. There is no Dr. John H. Watson is fictional and there's no one claiming to be Dr. John H. Watson. And if you could introduce me to somebody who was claiming that and was capable of doing and fulfilling the roles of Dr. John H. Watson, well, then like by default, they really are John H. Watson. And then okay. he said, I'm glad you see it my way. And I realized, <laughs> oh, what? I just made this. I was like, this man's, I just made his argument for him. Like, I thought I was being clever. And then it, that led to that first conversation was eight hours. Wow. So tell me about that real quick. Uh, um, or you know what? Hang on. We're going to uh, take a break here. Um, we're going to cool. come back and talk about AI in space a little bit. Yes. Um, and then we're going to get to some really important questions in our last quarter. Okay. Here. Uh, obviously, we could go on forever. So here we go into the break. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You are listening to The Space Revolution on IROC Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio Network. We'll be back with a guest, Mike Mongo. Welcome back, spacers. IROC Space Radio. You notice how all those little pauses just seem to last forever when you're on the radio. Anyway, you're listening to iRock Space Radio. My name is Rick Tomlinson. Uh, you can follow me at, at @RocketRick on the Twitter dumb, and uh, we're a part of the iHeart Space or iHeart Radio Network. And we have an amazing guest. Uh, we're going to be bringing it home here, shall we say, uh, Mike Mongo. And uh, Mike, we were talking about AI. In a broad sense, at the end of the last segment, I can sense your passion. I sense your excitement. Um, there is dread out there. There is excitement out there. But um, we're talking, in, let's, let's bring it into specifics in terms of space, right? Certainly. AI and humans. Actually, there'll be AIs and humans if we're going to personify them or whatever that correct term is. I won't. We won't get into the that part of it, um, but we're going to go together. How does that benefit opening the frontier? AIs can do things that human beings can't do. Uh, better, faster, stronger. Mm -hmm. AIs can be exposed to environments that we can't be exposed to. High radiation, terrible cold, no atmosphere, and be fine, not tortured or hurt. They they. Uh, are, are equipped to handle situations that and respond to situations in ways that human 
regular biological wet humans could never. They are the, the best ally at the best time. If, if humankind had not evolved, I am, I am of the worldview that humankind has already evolved. And that happened as soon as we began discussing evolution. So we had our 240,000 year run as Homo sapien without the idea of evolution. And then Charles Darwin took 30 years of his life to discern, entertain, and then figure out how to communicate the theory of evolution, which is actually a packet of all kinds of complex concepts that we can interchange as we become better familiarized with the processes of of evolution. So once that happened, in 1859, human beings, homo sapiens, became self-sorting. There was the first group that said, there's no such thing as evolution. We were put here by the magic jelly bean, and we must follow the rules of the magic jelly bean. And then when we do good, we go to the candy store in the sky, or we go to or the land of diabetes. And then there was the other group that said, this is the most amazing idea ever where do we evolve to next? After 160 years of that, of that, those two groups self-sorting, we achieved another aspect of evolution. It's this, it's the uh, imagining where we go to next. And that's why things like AI happen now. That's why these, these amazing breakthroughs that we have, have worked on from all of the, the eons of, of progress that we have worked on happen now it, it all seems like wow it's all happening so fast uh 240,000 years of just homo sapien and then and then uh hominids you know fire is is half a million years it was half a million years ago that we discovered and began making use of fire as hominids prior to us being homo sapiens mm-hmm. so all of this and i mentioned fire is fire is a good one is because ai is actually the only thing i can think of that resembles fire excuse me, AI and its impact in, in, in uh, for human beings in our history and in the entirety of our history is the advent of fire. And that's how impactful AI is. So we're not, we, we got fire led us to space, essentially. It's, we, people talk about how rockets go to space and it's like a bunch of uh, bombs going off at, at the end of a tube and shuttling us up there and that those bombs are fire. And now AI is, is that AI is going to be the best, uh, the best companion to go to space. That's great. I, 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 I do agree. I, um, as you know, I had this crazy asteroid mining company back in 2012. We started and um, one of the stories. DSI. What, what? What? Deep space industries. Yo. And, uh, no, no. But we were, uh, uh, one of the storyboards we were going to do was some guy sitting at a coffee shop and he's got a pair of glasses on, but he looks kind of dazed and he keeps talking to somebody named Joe. And, um, and he's just sitting there having this conversation with somebody named Joe. And, um, um, and back then, by the way, you know, not everybody was wearing AirPods or anything like that. So this, this would be kind of weird. What's this guy talking to? And then you cut out to the asteroid and there's an AI driven um, robot. And it's drilling into the asteroid and presenting him with different sorts of samples and their spectrums and making decisions. And it has to be AI because of the time lag, you know, minutes or hours, depending on how far out in the solar system. And so Joe is making a lot of the decisions and then working with his partner who's sitting in the coffee shop, you know, and um, and then they load them into this little thing and they take them to the big mega guys uh, much like in the Canadian North, people would have done uh, furs, right? They'd take the furs to the trading center, right? So you'd have all these independent operators, except they're in pairs. They're AI and human, you know? And then to just make it cute at the end of it, we look across the coffee shop and there's a lady sitting there and she's talking to somebody named Mary, right? So, yeah. Anyway, the point is it's leveraging humanity, going out into places where humans can't go, um, and basically expanding the reach of beings from this planet, right? Because it becomes about beings from this planet rather than humanity at that point. Um, it becomes about these sentient beings, whoever they are, whatever form they're in. Sapient. The sapient beings moving out into the solar system and beyond. So, beyond. You're out in space. You're flying, let's say... Uh, 
you're doing a longer flight than than when you're, you you may be doing in near term. Um, you're you're orbiting the Earth several thousand clicks a minute. You're able to kind of sense the speed of it. You're feeling it. You're looking down. What would you be listening to? Music wise, yeah, music wise. Uh, I have. There's a couple. Like I'm really into music. Mm-hmm. So, um. The entire Blue Note catalog. Jazz. I mean, Sun Ra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, also, and then uh, uh, also, um, like, I'm a big fan of P-Funk and Parliament Funkadelic and George Clinton. He, 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 in fact, I got to introduce George Clinton to Blue Origin because George Clinton wants to go to space. There you go. And we have. And this that's a very Rick Tumblinson story, by the way. So like, yeah, I got to like they, everybody was super excited. That was a great moment. So and then lastly, um, uh, Thomas Dolby has an album called The Flat Earth. Yes. That I adore. It is, it is sonically perfect. It was leaned heavy on, a, on an instrument called the Fairlight Synthesizer. And, mm-hmm. and it is as human an album as I've ever heard in my life. Wow. Yeah. We, you know, we're dating ourselves in that case, but totally, totally with you. Beautiful album. Um, perfect. Uh, I like that. And, and just picturing George Clinton uh, in full gear, but they probably wouldn't let him go up in full gear. But I mean, like it, he, he's talking about a mothership connection on the spaceship. There you go. There you go. Um, all right. Cool. Cool. Uh, who is your favorite science fiction author? Ray Bradbury. Why? He loves people. Beautiful. Beautiful. Favorite science fiction film or TV show or both? Arrival and The Expanse. Very different ends of the spectrum there. One, um, I mean, not really, uh, uh, not really, actually. Uh, no, I mean, There's just different narratives. And, and Arrival is most closely resembles my relationship with life, reality, and existence. And the expanse, I like how they invested so much in the world building in the first season and then it turned into the unexpected. Right, right, right. Yeah, we have these discussions, um, you know, of which future you're talking about, the expanse future, which in a sense is a projection of where we are now. And then the Star Trek future, which is aspirational, right? The Star Trek future does not take place without the evolution that I mentioned before. We do. We didn't get to the future by being who we were. Perfect. Very well said. And then there's Star Wars. That's a whole different story. Um, so cool. Um, what is your favorite nonfiction book of any sort? I don't usually ask the, this, but with you, I'm just gonna... a, oh, golly. Oh, uh, Favorite, not well. I tell you, I have a relationship with this book that is uh, over ten years. Um, this one right here, it is. Oh God, I'm embarrassed to share this. Uh, Stephen Wolfram's A New Kind of Science. Wow, it's a thousand pages, and uh, this I carry this giant book with me, the actual physical book. And yeah, he has a he he introduces an idea called the principle of computational equivalence, which, in my estimation, is as important as Darwin's theory of evolution, we haven't begun to comprehend it. And essentially it says that we that very simple programs produce very sophisticated computations. And that is ubiquitous all throughout the universe. And that rule is explains everything. It makes it makes we we had before thought that we required like in order for the universe to develop, it required this amazing, amazingly sophisticated. Uh, programming, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. And no. he, he validates it. He, he presents it right at the front and then validates it with a thousand pages. And I've had a relationship with that book for a decade. And it is just, it is something like my fingerprints are all over the inside just as I go through and I work to comprehend it. This is somebody who's dedicated their life to this, this idea built Wolfram Man- Mathematica. There's a fantastic Lex Friedman, Stephen Wolfram uh, interview. Perfect. I think it's three hours long. And I just go back to it and listen and listen and new things show up as I spend time. And that's, that's how I, how I work with stuff, Rick. I, like with nonfiction material, I, 
and live with it. That's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, we go from entropy, entropy to complexity, uh, minimal to maximal, and then the maximal, which is us, sentience being the ultimate of complexity, we begin to realize we came from simplicity. So it's a full circle. Bolzmann's law of entropy. That's a, mm-hmm. a good one. All right. Before we get too far off on that, that's a separate show. Um, okay. There's a kid out there, kids, different. Maybe the kid's 65. Mm-hmm. Maybe the kid's 16. Um, but they want to play in this world. What do you tell them? How do they, how do they join in the frontier, opening the frontier? How do they become part of this magical quest that we're on? This should probably start the show. And like, just saying. Like as a clip from this show, this is the moment. And here, here's the, here's the answer that I have for that, Rick. Very first is that as a 16 year old person, what happens is if, when we pay attention, we see that everyone around us has no idea what they're doing or they're just annoying. They're those two, that's the ifs, ands, and they, and they can, and they're plenty of extraordinarily annoying people who are 16. And and as we know, when we are 16, Mm -hmm. so then the opportunity at a six, as a 16-year-old is to take a chance that is a leap of faith and state what it is that I want to do. Presently, and for maybe for all time, who, how do I know? When we ask anyone what is the thing they want to do, what a goal are they after, what problem do they want to solve, often we are trained at this point to say, I don't know. Anyone, and, and 16-year-olds understand this. They hear it all the time. I don't know. They hear their peers say it. I don't know. Take a chance and no. Take a chance and no. Just declare anything. I have seen when people declare, even, you know how it's like stuff is in the back of our mind and we don't think about it. And right. then when somebody challenges us, I'll say, well, what if you did know? What would it be? So many times students will come up with an answer. It's amazing, actually. Even if it was one third of the time that an idea came up, I would say that of that third of the time that half of the people that propose an idea, they actually, from that moment, go and start pursuing that thing. I got goosebumps. (laughs) And then, and then just because they've been given the opportunity to examine their own thinking and then they take that chance, they're like, maybe that is the thing. And then, then magic happens. Magic is just a word that we use to describe that, which cannot be put to words. And it's a beautiful word, magic. And when we live right, when we live well, true to ourselves, in integrity with our own dreams, our own vision, our own desire, our own hopes, that's magic. And uh, the, the other that's thing I would perfect. say is that when there's, there's two other things. The, the other thing is that um, when we do, when we start, it seems impossible. And you mentioned this earlier. We start Arthur Ashe. Start where you are. Work with whatever you have or don't have and do what you can. It will be enough. And that's start where you are, work with what you have and do what you can. That's Arthur Ashe. And I looked at that. He actually said that. And then um, the other thing comes from the, uh, a friend of mine. Her name is um, NASA Blueberry, Alyssa Carson. She has been training for an, be an astronaut since she was like young, since she like her, before she was 10. And now she's in college and she wrote that at 13, she wrote the introduction to the astronaut instruction manual and, and now she's in college and she tells students all the time. And she gets so excited when she tells this and she has a way of communicating. But when she talks about this thing, she gets excited. She says, if you have a dream or vision or passion, whatever it is, tell everybody around you, Mm. you, we never know who we're talking with. Look at at you. If I saw you and you're at an ice cream parlor or a a sushi restaurant or wherever, and and I I may not realize you may, you probably would have a a baseball cap with a space logo on it, but I may not realize Mm -hmm. that you're the one and I'm standing next to you at a counter and I've never seen you before. And I don't have, and I may never see you again. If I declare that my vision, imagine of a six year old by happenstance, declares to you that their vision for themselves is to go to space. Oh my gosh. Is that the luckiest 16 year old in the whole world perhaps? And we can be that. So those are the, those are the three things is, is that it is, is a dare to have a vision, 
the uh, s- start on it with whatever you have and then declare it. Uh, excuse me, tell everybody. Like, dare to have a vision, work on it, and declare it. Tell, tell everybody. I that, always say to, I, I always say to grownups, do what you love with who you love and help others. As a 16-year-old, that's hard to wrap our heads around. Dare to have a dream, work on it, and declare it. There's my answer. Perfect. Mike, thank you very much, man. We're going to have you back. You and I are just going to go nuts one day. Or nuttier. All right, folks. Thank you for uh, taking these orbits with us. And uh, you are listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. My name is Rick Tomlinson, at Rocket Rick on the Twitterdom. We are out the airlock. You've been listening to the Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tomlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.